The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at republicen.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I'm so thrilled that so many of you are participating in our new weekly contest. It's so fun to read your answers. Spoiler, no one has submitted an incorrect answer, and I love notifying the winners, so keep it going. This week, we are going to take a trip to the past and chat with Bill Riley, who served as the EPA administrator during President George H.W. Bush's term in office. Mr. Riley spent all four years there ushering through the legislative process the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990. He was on the delegation that attended the the Rio Climate Conference and was in charge of President Bush's environmental agenda. President Bush ran for election on the environment, a legacy that is often forgotten today. In addition to his longtime public service, which spanned four U.S. presidents, Mr. Riley was also president of the World Wildlife Fund and later chairman of the board. He was president of the Conservation Foundation and director of the Rockefeller Task Force on Land Use and Urban Growth. Mr. Riley has chaired the board on the Global Water Challenge and Climate Works Foundation. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Water Partnership and the board of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has also served on several corporate boards, including DuPont, ConocoPhillips, and Royal Caribbean. Listeners, please join me in welcoming Mr. Bill Riley. Coming up next. Listeners, welcome back. I'm so excited to have our second former EPA administrator, Mr. Bill Riley, here on the show. Thank you, Mr. Riley, for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So as I um, told listeners, not that you need an introduction, but you did hold the job of EPA administrator under the first President Bush. And I was really impressed doing some research just to see or to remember how, how bipartisan things used to be back then. And, you know, President Bush ran for office on being the promise of being the environmental president, which put a lot of responsibility on you. <laughs> well, it did. But, you know, an interesting thing as I sat at the cabinet table, I realized that it gave me a tremendous advantage. I had a vocation, not just because I was a conservationist, a lifelong member of the environmental tribe, but because he had promised to be the environmental president. And I, I dined out on that. I was able to feel confident in arguments and contention with the chief of staff, the vice president, the budget director, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, none of whom really, honestly, I thought understood why he had said he would be the environmental president. But he did. It worked extremely well for him in the campaign. It, it struck everyone uh, first of all, it's very timely because the environment was very much in the news in the summer of 1988 when the campaign was in full swing. And secondly, because it was an implicit declaration of independence from President Reagan. Right. He needed to do that uh, for a lot of reasons. He also did it with the famous uh, kinder, gentler promise 
which apparently upset Mrs. Reagan, kinder, gentler than who. <laughs> but it, it worked for him. And so in, in appointing me, he was making good on that commitment. And that gave me, I thought, my mandate. And you had this mandate, but you also had a number of players in Congress in both parties who were willing to work with you. There were a good number of people who were very disposed positively toward the environment. Unfortunately, from uh, my point of view, most of them were Democrats. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm uh, thinking of, you know, John Chafee, who I worked for the yes. last two years of his chairmanship, his life on EPW. He was pretty critical back in those days. Um, and then when I look at the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 and how many people vote, and now I know how the sausage was, is made. I worked on Capitol Hill, I'm sure. And I would love to hear your reflections on what that process was like to get from bill introduction through all the committees, both chambers, in conference, at a conference, to the president's desk. I think even people who have seen that little cartoon, I am just a bill, a lonely old bill, don't really get how many steps there are before something becomes law. Yes. And so I'm sure there was a lot of negotiating and a lot of horse trading that went along the way, but those votes were overwhelming, like 400 and something to, you know, the, the balance in yes. the House and in the Senate, it was 90 something votes for. So we don't see lopsided no, votes we like don't. that today. No, we don't. And that shows the tremendous advantage in having a president, particularly a Republican president, defy the expectations and tell his party in the Congress, many of whom had never really voted for anything environmental before, particularly some of the Westerners and Southerners, that uh, this mattered to him, that this was a priority, that uh, provo- that was a, a, it was a game-changing situation. And the public support and the public identification and interest in the environment played a very important role in that. Senator Chafee was a good example of the period when we did have strong environmentalists on the Republican Party, particularly Northeast Republicans. And uh, he was uh, one of the best. He swore me in. Oh, that's so lovely. Um, Well, I was just thinking that also in those days, I was in college when um, the first President Bush was elected. And I remember being a kid and hearing about acid rain. I grew up in Maine. So of course we were worried about our forests. And I also remember being younger than that. And my mom was an avid user of sunscreen on us as kids. And we'd be at the beach visiting our cousins in San Diego and we wanted to get back in the water and she'd be like, no, 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 you have to have your sunscreen on. And then she made us make us sit and let it soak in before getting in the water. And we were always so angry. And Um, But these were two issues that I feel like had some natural PR built in to get broad American support for in a way that climate change just doesn't. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on why that is. Well, I think the most obvious reason is, uh, and I've thought a lot about that, is that it doesn't touch us in the same personal, immediate way that the fear of uh, upper atmospheric ozone depletion and skin cancer did, say, or then air pollution did in Los Angeles, Houston, uh, even New York, where you had to change your shirt if you were going to go out to dinner of an evening, because if you'd been out all day, your collar was uh, blemished. Wow. The uh, climate change is so um, imperceptible in its progression 
And we, I used to discuss this with Bill Ruckelshaus, the first EPA administrator, like, what is it going to take? Because we certainly have had warnings at least since 1989 or 90 from the scientific community, the National Academy of Sciences or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change about what's coming. And with steadily progressive assurances and confidence in their predictions until finally there's no margin, really, there's no significant scientific difference of opinion about the inevitability of climate change. There are differences of, of opinion about how clouds will affect the whole progression of warmth or coolness. But, um, you know, we, if we trust and believe science, we've, we've been getting a message for 30 years that we've not paid that much attention to. Yeah. I mean, the, so after acid rain, or sorry, not acid rain, ozone depletion, there were 14 years between when the scientists first sounded the alarm and the Montreal Protocol was ratified. So listeners, the Montreal Protocol was the international treaty that um, nations agreed to to reduce um, the harmful CFCs that were causing the depletion in the ozone layer. And 14 years seems like a long time. Scientists are sounding an alarm. An alarm. If we'd waited 14 years to address COVID, we would all be dead or sick or <laughs> something like that. Climate change, I mean, you're right. It was, you know, the late... I mean, if you go back to when Al Gore was first elected in the 70s and had the first hearing on climate change in the late 70s, and then in the 80s, it built and Senator Chafee had a hearing in 1986, we're 40 years from that and we're still not listening. And the the warnings just keep getting dire and dire and dire. And I, you know, having worked for Republican members and working with the conservative community now, I'm very sensitive about um, people not wanting you to sound alarmist. And I'm sort of at the point where I'm like hitting the red button, right? <laughs> like we have to sound the alarm. Yes. Well, I think that uh, the Montreal Protocol was a different kind of challenge. It essentially was one set of products, chlorofluorocarbons. Mm-hmm. And we first of all had to de- demonstrate the effectiveness of the science. And there were two scientists who won the Nobel Prize for having determined how they worked in the upper atmosphere. And then Secretary of State was very committed, became persuaded that it was likely real. He believed the science and he approached- And this was um, George Schultz, right? George Schultz, yes. Mm -hmm. And Schultz approached the president as he uh, repeated many times, he and I were close friends, saying uh, simply, there's not 100% assurance here but there's a preponderance of scientific opinion. It's worrisome. One set of uh, products are responsible. The United States uses a lot of them. And um, the best approach to the risk we have is not to take a chance, is to buy ourselves an insurance policy. And that worked with President Reagan. Yeah. So the climate issue, if you're seriously going to address the climate issue, as you know, it involves a wholesale top to bottom reform of economic activities of mm-hmm. all activities relating to energy really well that's a lot to ask and it's going to have cost i think environmentalists for a time tried to uh, say it wouldn't cost that there'd be jobs in renewable industries renewable energy industries and things of that sort but the fact is it it, it will change lives it will require new technologies and um 
there's even a question about uh, adaptation and the kinds of costs that that will entail, which are indisputable, and we're already beginning to pay them. If you go to Miami after a, a high tide and a serious rain, the f- streets, some of them, flow like Venetian canals. Yeah. And so the Miami has bought, Miami Beach particularly, bought uh, large uh, and expensive pumps, which will only be effective for so long. And that's going to be true of a lot of our seaside cities. And it's a hit hard in parts of Alaska and, and parts of the Carolinas. Well, that's just one example of the kind of changes that we're going to have to understand and accept. It seems to help politically to um, call these changes something else when, um, when we debate them. Because climate change, I remember... I remember I once was associated with the transformation of an energy company in in Texas, and we were canceling eight coal-fired power plants. And I was advised by public relations people not to say we were doing it for climate change, but we were doing it for energy independence for yes. Texans, yes. for example, that that was fine. And um, Texans were very supportive, have been from the George W. Bush days as governor, of uh, renewables, of uh, wind power particularly. So there are ways to address the problem without engaging the ideology or offending people against uh, the notion that, that climate change meets means very severe regulation. Well, exactly. And especially because, as you noted at the beginning of the show, it isn't something that we can touch. So it's not like you see it on your shirt if you've been out in the smog. It's not localized the way smog is or right. you're not feeling the immediate asthmatic impacts. Um, but I would say I read a statistic that 80% of Americans experienced a hotter than average heat wave in 2021, which is crazy, right? So people are feeling, we are seeing it, but but it's hard to separate what people think about weather we've had several meteorologists on the show give their version of how they look at weather versus climate. And so, I don't know, I do think that these people that live on on the coast, which is 40% of Americans live on the coast, they have the risk of sea level rise or erosion or these big storms coming in. And and in Miami, as you noted, it doesn't have to be a hurricane. They have sunny day flooding, which just was crazy to me. (laughs) You know, I have long been concerned, you may raise the weather question, about the role of farmers and the attitudes of farmers, because they know they knew before the rest of us mm-hmm. that the uh, certain seasons were longer or shorter and different times of the year than, than historically they had been. And so if you talk to them, you, they'll, they'll acknowledge that. They don't want to say that it's climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, so some time ago, the Nicholas Institute at Duke University whose advisory board I chair, had polling conducted to find out just why. Well, it turns out that, by and large, the farmer community understands climate change. They don't dispute it uh, privately. But they don't want to acknowledge it as a national problem because they fear the kind of regulations that it will justify. Mm -hmm. That's largely the issue for them. So somehow... um, the kinds of initiatives that are associated with responding to climate change need to be made more reassuring, more benign. And the um, way to do that, I think, is to talk more about adaptation and to concentrate more on the positives, on the fact that we are really seeing 
quite an uptake in renewable energy in the past few years. It's still, it's still, you know, it's in the single digits in terms of, of how much it's typically affecting the aggregate of energy use of people in the United States. But it, it, it's on the horizon as something that really will help us address this problem. Where energy optimists and climate realists stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. You've touched on energy independence a couple of times now. So I would love to bring the conversation to what we're seeing today, which is a war in Europe with Russia having attacked Ukraine and major countries in Europe being dependent on Russian natural gas. In the U.S., we import, I think it was eight, seven or eight percent of our natural gas comes from Russia. President Biden has said, we're not going to do that. We will feel it at the price of the pump. I think it's a price that I know I'm willing to pay um, to impact, you know, to hopefully um, tip the scale in the favor of Ukrainians in this um, in, in this war. But I, I sort of have this fear that the reaction to that is going to be drill more, right? Where what I think I would like to see is more people saying, okay, well, it's time to convert to more electric vehicles. It's time to bring in nuclear energy as our sort of baseload energy source so that we aren't just continuing to rely on a, a finite source, right? Which is what oil and gas is. Well, I have to say, I agree with you. I think that, that uh, it's distressing to see that we are now going to as we allegedly, we reportedly are, to Iran and to Venezuela, looking for um, changes in our policies towards those countries in order to access more oil. In fairness to the president, um, the idea of, of increasing our nuclear responsibilities, base load uh, or, or uptake in renewables, is not something that will help us in the short term with the gas right. price, which he's worried about, and the public right. is likely... Likely to for. Yeah. I, uh, I think that we're, you know, I, I think back, there has so often been important distractions, something more important, war and peace than climate. I can remember one time I had a gripe that I wanted to take to the president. I've forgotten mm-hmm. even what it was. And I was outside his office about to go in. I had an appointment with him. And Brent Scowcroft, the national security advisor, came out. And I said, what's the president doing right now? What's on his mind? He said, right now, he's, he's looking at uh, the, the bombing targets for Iraq tomorrow. And I thought, I don't need to talk to him. <laughs> I'm and, not going to get his attention today. <laughs> you know, here we are again. Um, there's something now I wouldn't have thought that the planetary threat that is represented by climate change would have a competitor for president's attention or the attention of the rest of us. But here we are looking at the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It, it really is almost cyclical in a way, right? We have, we just keep putting climate change on the back burner. And in the meantime, you know, these calls to, to generate more fossil fuels will continue to make the problem worse and worse. And it's just so frustrating and mind blowing. And, you know, I wanted to read a quote that President Bush once said, because I think it is so applicable today. He said, um, and this was in the re at the Rio summit in 1992, which, um, I would love to, I know that you weren't secretary of state, but I'm sure you were very involved in, um, delegation. <laughs> so, um, he said, 
we must leave this earth in better condition than we found it. And today, this old truth must be applied to new threats facing the resources which sustain us all. The atmosphere and the ocean, the stratosphere and the biosphere. Our village is truly global. And it's so true, right? I mean, we can't see climate change. We can't touch it, but it's global. It's happening to all of us. What we do here, somebody else is going to feel and we're always going to have challenges. There are always going to be wars. There are always going to be, um, you know, the, the price of energy is not static. It's always changing. And so we have to find a way to get over all of that to do what's right. Well, I think we do, but I will say something that's more positive. Okay. And that is that America can turn on a dime. I saw that in 1988 when President Bush promised to be the environmental president. People were taken aback. They were startled. It was a very effective campaign. He went to, to Boston Harbor to the backyard of his opponent. Exactly, <laughs> which, was, which was daring and flamboyant. Uh-huh. And it worked. Yes. And the country was with us. And the votes that you had described at the beginning of this program for clean air really demonstrated that. I don't want to overstress it because... Not long ago, I had occasion to call George Mitchell, former majority leader during that time of the Senate, Democratic senator from Maine. And I asked him, if after we succeeded in defeating the coalition that we had to defeat, which was largely the Appropriations Committee chairman in the Senate, Senator Senator Byrd, and the Commerce Chairman Committee chairman in the House, John Dingell, after we succeeded where which had not happened for 12 years and though though Mitchell had tried very hard to lead a coalition that would but we did i said could we have done it again could we for example if we took on climate have passed legislation to get a commitment as the europeans wanted us to do to 10 or even 20% reduction over time in the um, in the co2 that we were generating and he said i don't think so he said, I think that we kind of um, spent our uh, capacity on the Clean Air Act. He said, however, I have to say to you, Bill, I didn't think you'd get clean air. Well, I was going to ask why carbon was not, why there wasn't a carbon dioxide title of the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990. I feel like you just answered my question without knowing that was a question. Well, not even, not even was carbon dioxide not in the legislation, but Mr. Dingle, the chairman of the Commerce Committee, had read into the historical record, the legislative history, a specific statement to the effect that under no circumstances was carbon dioxide to be classified as a pollutant in um, the course of the jurisdiction of that legislation. Well, the interesting thing to me is that the great conservative jurist Scalia, uh, Antonin Scalia, this basically... um, strongly objected to the idea of looking at legislative history when studying the meaning of a, of a statute. Mm-hmm. He said the meaning of the statute is in the words of the statute itself. And the, the rest of the Supreme Court essentially has gone along with that. Mm-hmm. Legislative history no longer has the status that it has. And that's what made possible Massachusetts versus EPA, which gave EPA the right to an obligation to decide whether whether uh, CO2 was a pollutant. No, that's true. And that, uh, as you were starting to tell that story, I was wondering if that's where it was going to end up that yes, he he was sort of um, uh, 
hurt himself there, right? By having, if he was going to follow his own precedent, then he had to ignore what Congressman Dingell once um, once put in the legislative history. And as somebody that used to have to write some of that legislative history, um, now I feel like I spent a lot of time doing something that probably doesn't well, matter. <laughs> when I was in law school, legislative <laughs> history was often researched, was important, an important part of determining the the implications of a statute. So one more time talking about the spirit of bipartisanship and, you know, there haven't been that many EPA administrators, right? I think that actually maybe the second president Bush had the most in terms of um, in his eight years in office, but y'all kind of stick around for most of the term. I know you served president Bush for your, for his whole four years in office and Carol Browner obviously served um, president Clinton eight years and, um, and you guys are, it seems like kind of a tight group, you uh, alum of the EPA administrator job. And I really always appreciated seeing op-eds, especially by the Republican EPA administrators. So Mr. Ruckel's house when he was alive, you, um, Governor Whitman, and, and I, I can't, I have to just call it out that I don't think any will be signing onto any joint letters or op-eds with the last two EPA administrators in the 2016 to 2020 presidential term. Um, It seems pretty clear that between Mr. Scott Pruitt and Andrew Wheeler that, you know, two very um, loud climate deniers, despite what they try to say, that there isn't that bipartisan spirit coming from either of those guys. So what, what does this do to the concept of bipartisanship? Like it doesn't seem as valued today as it was even 10 years ago? Well, that is true. I never, in fact, even met Mr. Pruitt. I uh, did meet Mr. Wheeler and um, had limited dealings with him and was quite critical of much of what he did. I know I was testifying on several of his decisions at one point when it turned out that he was watching me from his office live on television and rebutting the statements I was making as I was making them. And I remember thinking I would not have known how to do that when I was a administrator. <laughs> we, we didn't have that kind of capability. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I called Mr. Wheeler um, the last day he was in office to tell him I knew how it felt to see all of this power for good slipping away and to know that... Um, you would no longer be able to do the kinds of things that mattered because I thought, I thought Wheeler was, had, was an honorable man. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was astonished that I called, but I thought to myself, you know, we really have to put this country back together again. And this is uh, the least I can do. And in fact, I had asked him the only thing I'd ever asked him, he he responded to, and I think he might've been intending to anyway. And that was to get some money for clean water, for the Mojave Reservation and other Indian reservations in the West. And an issue that he turned out when I talked to him, he know, knew better than I did because he had worked for a senator from Oklahoma, Senator Enhoff, which yeah. had reservations in his district. And uh, he got $20 million set aside for that. So, um, you know, so we move on. But uh, he, he worked for somebody, obviously, who, uh, for whom I think an awful lot of us just felt embarrassment. Well, it does feel like the, the effort was set back for four years, and that is um, unfortunate, but we, don't, we only have to move forward. So looking ahead, 
Is there something that gives you hope as we move forward, you know, in these times we're obviously coming out of a pandemic, but there's a war and, you know, we're always, as I said, going to have these challenges. So, so what, when you wake up in the morning, what gives you hope for uh, the future of the environment and conservation and bipartisanship? Well, we have, thanks to President Biden, begun the effort to remedy many of our defects, particularly the the uh, infrastructure bill. It has it has climate support, but it also has support for extending the internet. And the idea that so much of rural America, which is the most alienated, I think, from the issues that we're talking about, that they don't have internet in large swaths of geography, that really ought to be addressed. Well, it is being addressed. That is very promising. There is money now to do that. I think that if we get some pieces and there is, I understand the willingness on the part of the dissenting Democrat senators to uh, do so uh, that involve climate, that will make a difference as well. That will accelerate the research into new technologies, carbon extraction from the air, for example, uh, new uses, new creations of, uh, of seeds that are drought resistant or flood resistant. There's a whole, there's a whole community now of people, researchers, uh, scholarly institutions, universities that are more focused on climate change than ever they were in the past. And, and that's not just in the United States. That's true in Europe and other countries. That is a very hopeful sign because the history is we get breakthroughs. America the great story of the environment in America is every major commitment we have made, a priority of national policy, we have succeeded. Yeah. We haven't solved the air problem or the water problem, but we're a much greener, much cleaner, much bluer skied country than we were. Yeah. And that's thanks to the commitments that were made in 1970 and throughout that period since the environmental rally of the first Earth Day. That is a reason if you're an environmentalist to be hopeful. Well, in the words of Winston Churchill, America can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. So (laughs) (laughs) we have been trying a lot of other things. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you so much for your time. I thank you for your service to this country. I thank you for your bipartisan spirit. And um, I'm glad to know that you're still out there um, beating the drum and look forward to continued conversations. And I do as well. Congratulate you on your interest in this issue and effectiveness with this podcast. Thank you. Price. It's spring. Spring is in the air. We have all these blossoming guests. I've just been so excited with our programming this year. What I'm excited for is... More great guests, more podcasts, and more winners of our weekly contests. Because I know we got to have a weekly winner this week after last week. Yes, we do, actually. Um, so last week's winner is Cameron Kay from Ohio. Cameron, you're our winner for knowing that um, Jim Gandy, our last week's guest, noted that in all of the reporting he did on climate change in, you know, a pretty conservative media market, 
that the studio manager got more complaints about what the anchors were wearing than they ever did about his climate reporting. So, yay <laughs> for people not complaining about climate <laughs> reporting. Yay to Cameron for get being our winner and um, and correctly um, being our win- winner from among the correct guesses. So, twenty five dollar gift card coming your way and. Um, so happy that people are playing our little game, Price. $25 just for simply listening and knowing the right answer. I don't know what could be easier than that, and you could answer uh, every single week when we have a new podcast, republican.org forward slash quiz. And with last week's winner comes a new question this week. Chelsea Henderson, take it away with this week's question. All right, so this week we heard from Mr. Bill Riley, who was a former EPA administrator. If you've reached this far in the podcast and you didn't know that, well, then you need to go back and listen again. Just kidding. (laughs) If you're hanging in here, then you've been listening, you know. And in um, the conversation, he was, you know, talking about how climate, conservation, environment, these were really important issues to the first President Bush. And that he, Mr. Riley, was in the wings of the the halls of the West Wing, as it were, waiting to brief the president on something environment related when out walked a particular aide. This is the question looking a little bit, um, you know, a little glum. And Mr. Riley noted who it was, noted what they'd been talking about and decided to save his issue for another day. So who was it, listeners? Who did Bill Riley encounter outside the West Wing um, on this fateful day when he decided that he didn't need to bother the president with the issue that he had been bringing to him? So give us an answer, republican.org forward slash quiz. And then from those correct answers, and I'm proud to say, Price, every answer has been correct so far. But from those correct answers, we do a random drawing, so get your answers in, and uh, you will be automatically entered to win. Fantastic, fantastic. I love it. I um, want to shout out some new members this week. Um, Stephanie S. in Wisconsin, Brittany A. in Florida, Ron N. in Pennsylvania, Bobby Lee W. in Texas, Francis C. in Indiana. We thank you for standing with us, which you can do at republicen.org forward slash join. So sign up, stand with us if you have not done so. Speaking of signing up, sign up and get the podcast delivered right to your smartphone every single week. All you got to do is go to your favorite podcast app, wherever you listen to podcasts, and hit download, subscribe, whatever that particular uh, app of choice is, whatever their terminology, usually it's going to be subscribed. So hit that button and you will have a new episode delivered to your smartphone, Um you know, your tablet, your computer, whatever it is, every Tuesday when we have a new episode dropping weekly on Tuesdays. So, Chelsea, real quick before we get out of here, next week, what do we have on tap? Well, Price, uh, we're kind of um, floating in and out of a South Carolina theme, it would seem. Next week, we will hear from uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, as you know, represents the 1st Congressional District in South Carolina. Um, someone who we took a field trip with last, uh, I don't even remember what season it was, last year. The yep. whole, all the seasons have run together. Um, but 
She's a you know new member to Congress and um, has really been embracing the environment and issues that we care about. So really looking forward to sharing that conversation with our listeners. And Bob will join in as well as um, not a former first district uh, rep. Obviously, he repped the fourth district, but he has developed a nice friendship with um, Congresswoman Mace. Well, you will hear that interview and conversation next week. Congresswoman Nancy Mays from the 1st District of South Carolina. And I'm excited for that one. And Chelsea, until then, have a great week. Have a great weekend. Have a great day, night, whatever time it is, wherever you're listening from, listeners. We will see you then. Yeah, happy spring, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 